Hi, everybody. I hope you're doing well as you listen to this first lecture on Europe, uh, the first of a series of lectures on Europe. Um, Europe is a very fascinating place, as you might uh, already be aware of if you've ever visited Europe. Uh, uh, um, within an area that's actually smaller than North America, there are a variety of climates, landforms, and agricultural output, as well as a variety of different industrial uh, areas also. There are uh, 40 countries with different languages, money, and culture. Because of this diversity, Europe has a history of warfare. Europe is currently at a point of both globalization, uh, and that's with the formation of a transnational political and economic entity, uh, the European Union. And it's also at a point of national identity, with the dissolution of a no number of East Eastern European countries. And in particular, uh, you know, as an example, we can look at the former Czechoslovakia that has uh, split into the Czech Republic and the Slovak Republic. Europe has always had an intimate relation with, uh, relationship with the sea, and this has provided the perfect setting for maritime economies. Uh, believe it or not, approximately 80% of the population lives within 100 miles of a, of a coastline. Uh, the highest ratio of coastline to population to total land area of any other region in the world. Uh, we'll also find that when we start to look at the physical geography of the region, that we have east to west trending mountains that allow for deep penetration of a maritime climate, um, of marit marine climate uh, influences that actually keep uh, Europe much warmer than we would normally expect for its high latitude. Also, when we look at um, the uh, economic and uh, population geography of the region, we'll see that levels of development, economic development, and urbanization generally decline uh, from the west to the east and from the north to the south. Europe, uh, much like the United States and, Nor and North America, is uh, transitioning or has transitioned in many places to a post-industrial economy that's based on services and tourism. So let's take a look at some of the learning objectives uh, for this um, for uh, for this uh, series of lectures on Europe. So as I mentioned, uh, we're going to be looking at Europe, one of the world's most densely settled and modern regions. This is uh, one of the first regions that we looked at that actually could be considered uh, one of the more developed regions of the world. Um, an, an important objective for you in this chapter is to understand the dynamics that threw the region into armed conflict twice in the 20th century alone. That would be World War I and World War II. And uh, we also want you to, I also want you to be able to understand uh, the changing dynamics that have resulted in the formation of the European Union. At the conclusion of this uh, series of lectures, you should uh, be familiar with the physical, demographic, cultural, political, and economic characteristics of Europe. In addition, there's a variety of different concepts that you should be familiar with. And here are key concepts for the chapter. And you should really, uh, you know, as you're reading the chapters and uh, reading the chapter and listening to these lectures, you should really focus on these key concepts. Uh, Cold War. European Union, fjords, shield landscape, marine west coast climate, maritime climate, guest workers, fortress Europe, Shenzhen Agreement, medieval landscape, Renaissance Baroque, Iron Curtain, 
buffer zone, Euroland, command economy, and privatization. So as I said, Europe consists of about 40 countries ranging from large states such as Germany to microstates uh, such as Andorra uh, and the Vatican and others. Uh, relatively small region, it's, as I mentioned, it's smaller than North America that's densely settled. And it has really does have kind of a shared history, a shared history of exploration and colonization for many of the countries, uh, but it is also very culturally diverse. So we're going to start by, as we always do, by looking at the physical geography of the region. Um, and as I mentioned before, this region has always had a very close relationship with the sea and has provided, uh, the sea has provided transportation around the region uh, as well as uh, enabled exploration to other parts of the world. So Europe has some of the most diverse physical landscapes uh, of a region of its, of its size. As I said, it's a relatively small, um, uh, small region. Uh, some of the landform regions, we'll start off by looking at the European lowlands. The European lowlands on this map, um, well, uh, the European lowlands extend from the Pyrenees Mountains, as you can see on this map, uh, northward, up through France, of course, up through Belgium, the Luxembourg, the Netherlands, and so forth, into Germany, then into Poland. And as we'll see, and then, of course, also up into Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. And she was, as we'll see uh, uh, in the next uh, uh, lecture series on Russia and its neighbors, uh, we'll see that this European lowland actually extends the whole way into Russia. Uh, so this is a very important lowland, uh, has some of the densest populations in Europe, and also most, some of the most um, productive agricultural regions. Um, this, uh, the entire region is lower than 500 feet in uh, elevation, except in some places with hills. And as I said, it uh, includes some of the uh, most important rivers and port cities. It's, uh, been, it's divided by glaciation, and this line here really kind of gives you the uh, indication of how far the glaciers extended southward. And... Um, North of, uh, south of the Rhine, it's very good agriculturally, as I mentioned. North of the Rhine, glacial debris limits agriculture to, in some way. And we'll talk more about that when we look at population and settlement. The second major region, um, physical region in, uh, in Europe, is the Alpine Mountain System. And this is the east-west trending mountains, uh, series of mountains that run from the Atlantic to the Black Sea. So we're looking at, the, the, of course, this is the Atlantic over here, and we're looking at the Pyrenees Mountains through the Alps of, of southern France into Switzerland uh, and the whole way over to the Black Sea, including the Carpathians and, and so forth over in, in Eastern Europe. So a very uh, long uh, series of mountain ranges. Okay, um, they, these mount, this mountain range, was formed about 20 million years ago. Um, as I mentioned before, the Pyrenees uh, formed the border of Spain and France, and there's peaks here of over 10,000 feet. And as we'll see as we progress through uh, these lectures, that they are home, that this is home to the Basque and the Catalan people. And again, this is a group of the Basque in particular, but also the Catalans are a group of people that are uh, looking to gain more autonomy over their affairs. Um, currently part of Spain, but uh, want to gain more autonomy over their affairs. Uh, the Alps run from, uh, from uh, France 
to Eastern Australia, approximately five, um, I'm sorry, not Eastern Australia, Eastern Austria. So from France uh, through here to Eastern Austria. And we have peaks in this mountain range of greater than 5,000 feet in the west and about 10,000 feet in the east. And this really divides the Mediterranean from the rest of Europe. So if you look at this mountain, these mountain ranges, you can see they really do divide what is you sometimes referred to as Mediterranean Europe down in this area from the rest of Europe, Northern Europe. Okay, and we'll see that division uh, comes up uh, quite a bit because it'll come up in climate. It'll also come up in other uh, ways as, as well. Um, the Ap Apennines uh, Mountains, form the spine of the Italian peninsula, okay? Um, and uh, the Apennines include the volcanic uh, mountains such as Mount Etna and Mount Vesuvius. And I've, I've mentioned the Carpathians, and the Carpathians actually extend from uh, Austria and to Romania and then into Yugoslavia. So we're actually looking uh, at this area in here, and then down in the here as well. And in different places, these, this mountain, these mountain ranges will have different names. So for example, down in, in the former Yugoslavia, uh, they're referred to as the Dinaric Alps. Okay, so, um, but they're all part of the Carpathian system uh, that you can see actually almost forms a horseshoe here. And in the middle, we have something called the Hungarian Basin, which is very important uh, for agriculture. Um, so as I mentioned, uh, then in northern Greece, these, this mountain range is also referred to, um, has the name of the Rhodope Mountains uh, in northern Greece and Macedonia. So um, we can also look at the central uplands area. And this is an area uh, forms an area between the Alps and the European lowlands. So we're looking at this area right in here. Okay. Uh, and so... Uh, runs, uh, as I said, from, runs from the France to the Czech Republic in this area here. Um, contains much of the raw materials for industrialization. So one of the things that we'll see um, is that a lot of our cities, industrial cities located along here because they were relatively close uh, to those industrial raw materials uh, that, that they needed uh, to uh, produce uh, manufactured goods. And then, of course, we have what are known as the Western Highlands, and these run from Portugal, okay, up through the United Kingdom, and then, of course, on the, to the Scandinavian Plateau into Norway and Sweden. Um, the northern portions of the Western Highlands uh, uh, include flooded U-shaped valleys, uh, valley coastlines known as fjords, and we'll see an image of a fjord in a few minutes. Um, this is this, um, this uh, area contains 600 million year old rocks exposed by recent glaciation. And again, I want to point out this line of glaciation in Europe because that seems to be pretty significant for agricultural productivity and so forth in the, in the region. So this is a very rugged topography, makes agricultural difficult, except in a few of the favored places. And in many places, particularly on the Scandinavian plateau, um, Tree crops or trees are grown as a crop, so very important. And then we should also include uh, Iceland in this area because we do include Iceland as part of Europe. Uh, and you can see Iceland up in here, uh, very rugged, mountainous also, uh, but uh, 
and also lies on the uh, fault between the North American plate and the Eurasian plate. So it's very tectonically active. Um, and the uh, uh, molten lava is actually fairly close to the surface here. Surface here. And so the uh, people in Iceland are able to make use of, uh, of the energy from that uh, molten lava. Okay, so uh, some other things I want to point out here about the physical geography of the region. Uh, Europe is really a peninsula, and it's a peninsula off the uh, very large Eurasian landmass. And to be a peninsula, you need to have a um, you need you need the land, the body of land to be surrounded on three sides by water, which you can see. Uh, is the, the case here for Europe. We have the Mediterranean Sea to the south, we have the Atlantic Ocean to the west, we have the North Sea and the Baltic Sea to the north. And off of this large peninsula of Europe, we have several smaller peninsulas. We have the Balkan Peninsula, where the former Yugoslavia once was located and Greece is located. We have the Italian Peninsula, of course, with the country of Italy that's shaped like a boot, as I'm sure most of you already know. We have the Iberian Peninsula that contains Spain and Portugal. We have the Breton Peninsula that uh, extends off of France. We have the Jutland Peninsula that makes up most of uh, or uh, contains the country of Denmark. And then, of course, we have the Scandinavian Peninsula with the countries of Norway, Sweden, and Finland. Um, so the very close relationship uh, with the water, as I mentioned before. So this is the size, uh, relative size of uh, and location of Europe uh, relative to North America. And you can see uh, it is uh, obviously much smaller than North America. And most of it, I think, for most people, it is surprisingly further north than we think. So uh, in Binghamton, New York, we're located approximately right here in this, approximately in this area uh, where I'm pointing the cursor. And so you can see from this, uh, from this graphic that most of Europe is actually uh, north of Binghamton, New York. But surprisingly, uh, Europe has a much, uh, in many places in Europe have a much more moderate climate than we have here in Binghamton, New York. So I've already talked about some of these landform regions, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this slide. Uh, I think this is an image of the fjord that I mentioned before. Absolutely a beautiful landscape, and we would find this in the Western Highlands. Okay, And this would be our European, European lowland here. As you can see, a relatively flat landscape. This is the area where the most productive agriculture, at least south of that line of glaciation, um, uh, occurs in, in, on the European lowland. Let's talk a bit about the climate of Europe um, because it's a, a very diverse and varied climate. The climate is moderated by something called the North Atlantic Current, a warm current originating off of eastern uh, North America. So there's this current that actually begins uh, in the Caribbean. It's a warm water current that flows up along the uh, uh, the coast of North America. What we sometimes refer to it as the Gulf Stream in the United States. Uh, it's, uh, we call it the North Atlantic Current or the North Atlantic Drift in some cases as well. Uh, but this current actually flows, uh, if you can kind of imagine North America being over in here, it flows northward and then up along the coast. 
here, and it actually kind of splits here, and it actually flows up along the coast of Norway as well. So it kind of splits in here and goes, parts of it go this way, another part of it goes this way. Um, so that really helps them uh, moderate the temperatures uh, because this maritime west climate that we're referring to, um, what we have is the prevailing winds that are blowing from the west actually pick up uh, warmth from that current and blow into the interior. And you can actually see this line here, this green line. This is really the dividing line of what's known as the CFB or the Marine West Coast Climate. Um, that, the, that uh, is moderated by that uh, uh, current, or the uh, drift of that current inland. And then we come into a more continental climate as we move further inland. Okay, so let's uh, talk a bit more about this maritime uh, climate. There's no months below freezing where the temperature averages below freezing. Uh, we do experience cold rain, in some cases uh, snow, uh, and and depends where you're talking about. We could also have some blizzards um, in uh, in this climatic region. Um, and, and just to give you an example, um, think I want you to think about this. If you're familiar with uh, London at all, London is at 51 degrees 30 minutes north latitude, um, and uh, it experiences no. Uh, no months with uh, that are average temperatures are below freezing. Think of Montreal in Canada, which is only at 45 degrees 30 degree 45 minutes 30 degree. I'm sorry, 45 degrees 30 minutes north latitude. And think about the winters there and how cold they are, uh, and how that has uh, uh, average temperatures uh, January and February that are below freezing. Uh, and that'll give you some sense of how this maritime uh, our marine maritime west uh, climate or marine west coast climate actually uh, influences the temperature in this region. It also provides a lot of precipitation. As you're well familiar with Ireland, for example, that's called the Emerald Isle, not because they found emeralds there, but because it's so green from all the precipitation that it receives. And of course, you're familiar with London and, and England and, and Scotland and Wales and the amount of uh, rainfall they get as well. Uh, let's take a look at the continental climate. So as I mentioned, the dividing line between the marine west coast and the continental climate is right here in Germany, for the most part, on, on the continental part. Uh, you can even see that Norway experiences some of that marine west coast climate, but shortly after you move inland, it comes into a, a continental climate. The continental climate it has one or more months below freezing, where the temperature average is below freezing, and that's certainly the case in here. Um, rain is less prevalent uh, in this area because we lose our source of moisture as we move inland. Much of the rainfall occurs in this area, and so as the uh, air masses move inland, they've already lost much of their uh, moisture, and so uh, rainfall becomes uh, less prevalent. Uh, in some parts of this region, irrigation is needed to grow crops, especially as you move further inland. Okay. Um, so in the northern part of this region, because of the uh, relatively poor soils, we grow things like rye, potatoes, sugar beets, and then uh, cattle and hogs are also grown. Um, whereas in this area, remember this, uh, um, the area of the marine west coast climate, you'll find mixed uh, livestock, such as uh, mixed livestock and crop farming. And we'll have dairying, 
um, and we'll have uh, other sorts of uh, corn, soybeans, and things like that to feed cattle um, uh, that are slaughtered for, uh, for people to eat as well. So um, it really uh, varies in, in the types of crops that are grown based on the types of um, climate as well as the soil conditions in the region. Now I want to move a little bit further south into what's known as the Mediterranean climate. And I bet you can't guess where we'll find the Mediterranean climate. And if you said around the Atlantic Ocean, well, you're only partially right, because it does look like we have some CF. Uh, what do we have here? We have a CFB. No, we don't. We have the CFA, Mediterranean dry climate, along the coast of Portugal. Okay. So, but most of the Mediterranean climate, of course, is found around the uh, Mediterranean Ocean or Mediterranean Sea, as you can see from the dark green color on this map. So the Mediterranean uh, climate in this region has a dry season in the summer, and this is caused by high pressure that forms uh, and, and uh, prevents uh, rainfall from occurring in this area, um, uh, or at least a substantial amounts of rainfall. Now, I've, I've, uh, this is a climate very similar to what California would experience. So very dry climate in the, in the summertime. Uh, this region does experience wildfires, much like we would find in the western part of New York, or, uh, the western part of the United States, such as California and other western states that experience a very dry climate. And they, too, can have a devastating effect on the, the forests and people's homes in this region as well. Um, so we have drought in the summertime where irrigation is needed to grow crops if we're trying to grow any crops during the summertime. And in the wintertime, we have sunny weather and warm temperatures uh, uh, pretty much year-round. Uh, and this really encourages tourism. And so along the Mediterranean, of course, we have the Riviera along the French, uh, the French Riviera and so forth along this area. Uh, this is really a big area for tourism, uh, for Europeans to go for their summer holidays and so forth along the Mediterranean Sea. And also some of the islands in the Mediterranean as well uh, attract a lot of tourists. Um, so the types of crops that might be grown in this area are things like winter wheat, irrigated citrus, uh, orchards, olive trees, tomatoes, melons, grapes, uh, tobacco in Greece. And in Italy, you'll find sheep, uh, sheep and goats uh, also uh, are grown in this area as well. Okay, so I think that's uh, the climate. Let's take uh, uh, the different regions of, of Europe, the different climatic regions of Europe. So let's take a look at the um, different uh, seas, rivers, and ports, and coastlines in this area because it's really important. And to do that, I'm actually going to go back to the previous map that we saw earlier because I think it helps. Uh, it'll help you uh, visualize what I'm talking about a bit better. So as I mentioned before, Europe's really a peninsula. It's a ring of seas. Uh, the major seas are the Baltic Sea and the North Sea. Uh, these are very good for fishing waters. And particularly in the North Sea, we have an abundant supply of oil um, that is uh, exploited by both the UK, by the UK, in particular England and Scotland. And, and uh, probably the country that exploits North Sea oil more than any is uh, Norway. As a matter of fact, uh, Norway has kind of a nickname. It's sometimes referred to as the Sheikdom of the North uh, because of its uh, oil uh, resources in, in the North Sea. Um, so, as I said, good fishing, abundant oil. Uh, some of the major uh, 
Other major uh, features that we want to take a look at, of course, we have the English Channel, okay, that uh, uh, lies between uh, Britain and uh, Great Britain, the island of Great Britain, and that's what this is, island is referred to, the island of Great Britain, uh, divides the island of Great Britain from uh, the continent, the European continent. Uh, the Mediterranean Sea, which I pointed out before, and then over in the east, the very far east here, we have uh, the Black Sea, uh, and it's part of the Mediterranean. You can see there's a few other seas that uh, branch off. We have the Aegean Sea and the Adriatic Sea that branch off of that as well. Um, uh, I mentioned, I think, in a previous lecture, the significance of the Bosporus and the Dardanelles, which are located right in here. They connect the Black Sea um, to, and these would be straits, the Bosporus, the Dardanelles Strait and the Bosporus, uh, connect the Black Sea, obviously, to the Aegean Sea first, but then to the Mediterranean. So that's important to understand as well. Um, we have the Strait of Gibraltar that separates uh, the Iberian Peninsula from North Africa. And let me see, is there any other uh, things I want to point out? Uh, two other straits that maybe we should point, that I should point out to you are the Skagerrak. Yes, I know it sounds like, like a very strange name here that uh, divides the uh, Scandinavian pe Peninsula, particularly Norway, from the Jutland Peninsula, or Denmark. And then we have uh, uh, the um, the Kattegat. Uh, uh, so we have the Skagerrak here and the Kattegat here. And the Kattegat divides, uh, once again, the Scandinavian Peninsula, in particular Sweden, from the Jutland Peninsula. Okay, so these are very important shipping routes, and that's why I point these out to you. Um, and again, uh, much like we saw in North Africa and Southwest Asia, these could at some point be uh, um, global choke points. Okay, so let's take let's talk about some of the important rivers in the region as well, um, rivers and port cities. Um, navigable, navigable rivers uh, are connected by canals. And as a matter of fact, you can use the Danube River, and the Danube River is the longest river in Europe. The Danube you can actually use the Danube River to connect the Black Sea, and we can flow the whole way through here up into uh, the very southern part of Germany where they built a canal called the Rhine-Main Canal that will event that connects it eventually to the Rhine River. It's a very relatively short distance. And then you can use that canal to connect to the Rhine River to flow the whole way into the North Sea. So you can pretty much go from the North Sea uh, by, uh, by boat or by uh, if you're shipping goods by barge um, the, from the Black Sea the whole way to the North Sea. And that's very important because rivers have always been very important for transportation in Europe um, because, they, uh, because they are so navigable. Uh, we also have the... Um, uh, so I mentioned the Rhine River, and I should talk a little bit about that. Uh, the Rhine River empties into the North Sea at, um, at Rotterdam. And Rotterdam is the largest port in Europe. It's actually one of the largest ports in the world. Uh, and it's a very, very important port because a lot of raw materials that are used for manufacturing in Europe uh, come into the port of Rotterdam. They're offloaded onto smaller barges sent down the Rhine River, as I mentioned, maybe down the Danube River, but many of them go down the Rhine River 
and to some of the big uh, industrial cities in Germany, such as Dusseldorf, Cologne, and so forth, uh, where they're turned into manufactured goods. And then those manufactured goods are loaded back onto barges and, and boats and sent back up the Rhine to, uh, to Rotterdam to be shipped across the world. So the Rhine River is a very important river, uh, as is the Seine River in the northern part of France. Okay, and probably most of you have heard of that. Uh, and both all these rivers flow into um, the Atlantic Ocean or uh, the English Channel or the North Sea. So as I mentioned, I think that really the important thing to understand is that the, that the Danube is the longest river in Europe and the Rhine is probably the most uh, important river as far as uh, uh, most economically important river in Europe because of its transportation of goods and so forth. Uh, and just like Rotterdam, it's found at the mouth of the Rhine. We have other uh, uh, important port cities at the mouths of rivers, such as uh, London, which is at the mouth of the Thames, and Gdansk, which is uh, at the mouth. Gdansk is in Poland, and it's at the mouth of the uh, Wisla uh, River. Mediterranean ports, however, are found uh, uh, a little bit further away from um, their original harbors. Um, and probably one of the most important rivers in um, the Mediterranean area would be the Po River Valley in the northern part of Italy, right in this area here, uh, in the Po Valley. As you can see, it's a relatively low-lying uh, low area between the Apennines and the Alpine mountain system. Um, so it's a, it's a valley, uh, and it's, very, it's extremely important. Uh, because this is one of the most important uh, manufacturing centers for Italy. We have cities like Turin uh, in this area that, uh, where you find a lot of automobile manufacturing, Milan, which is a very important financial center as well. Uh, let me see here. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the uh, Dutch coastline. I'm sure uh, you're probably aware that they've uh, built dikes along here to uh, try to expand the land area of uh, the Netherlands, and that's been very successful. Uh, and obviously it's a very low-lying area, so what they do is they build these dikes, they pump the water back into the ocean, and then that um, land area becomes uh, available for settlement, for agriculture, and things like that. And so this has been a process that's actually been going on uh, for several hundred years, if not uh, a thousand years. It actually began in about 900 AD and continues today. Um, so let's uh, move on then. Uh, that's a good bit about the physical geography of Europe. I want to move on and talk about some of the environmental problems in Europe because there are some environmental problems uh, within this region. Um, Obviously, pollution is not a just a national problem. It's obviously an international problem uh, because uh, pollution is one of those uh, phenomena that you can't really control where it goes. So, for example, air pollution, air pollution that uh, emanates or you know, has its uh, origin in the UK, for example, because of the prevailing winds that go from the west will blow air pollution onto the mainland of Europe, the continental Europe. And very often that will fall as acid rain, and that acid rain will uh, damage uh, streams and rivers and so forth, uh, kill trees and, and, and uh, damage buildings because of the acidity of the precipitation. Okay, So you can see we have uh, areas that are impacted by acid rain on this map, and of course 
that would be the UK and much of the industrialized area of, of, um, of Europe, as you can see. And then areas of the worst air pollution, these are actually your major industrial areas in Europe. I think once we look at the economic geography and look at a map of the uh, industrial areas of, um, of Europe, you'll be able to see that these areas of worst pollution actually correspond very closely uh, to those uh, industrial area, uh, major industrial areas within Europe as well. Uh, as I mentioned, the Po River Valley, you can see right here, this is the Po River, and it's one of the areas of the worst air pollution. Uh, not only does air pollution cross boundaries, but so does water pollution. So, uh, you know, uh, water that's polluted in one country will, can flow into other countries. Uh, and the European Union has put in uh, place uh, some programs to try to uh, uh, reduce the amount of water pollution that's occurring. Uh, and that's why I have intergovernmental inter cooperation. Uh, and that's largely initiatives from the EU to reduce air pollution and to reduce water pollution. So um, let me see here. So while I have this map here, we may as well talk about, a little bit about the differences between Western Europe and Eastern Europe when, as far as the, uh, when we talk about pollution. So Western Europe has an industrial base that causes air pollution and water pollution. Environmental awareness is really very great in, in Western Europe and has been for quite some time. There's been uh, a lot of efforts in Western Europe uh, to reduce the amount of air pollution and water pollution. Um, that is caused by industries and obviously by transportation and automobiles and things like that. So as I mentioned, the European Union legislates environmental issues and green parties uh, in Europe are actually pretty powerful. Um, and, uh, you know, they get elected to office and things like that, unlike the Green Party here in the United States, which struggles to even get on the ballots in many states. Um, the green parties in Europe are actually pretty powerful and really support uh, these environmental regulations and so forth, and help promote this. Eastern Europe, on the other hand, uh, has a real legacy of environmental problems from uh, when it was uh, considered part of the uh, uh, former Soviet Union, uh, or uh, part, uh, considered part of the uh, um, ally of, of the Soviet Union, uh, because uh, there was very little importance placed on the reduction of pollution. There are very little environmental concerns uh, in this in this area in here, uh, the former Eastern European countries. Um, well, they're still Europe, Eastern European countries. It's actually interesting. When I first started teaching, uh, I used to teach Western Europe and Eastern Europe. And obviously, since the collapse of the former Soviet Union, that's no longer the case. Now we just talk about Europe, and we talk about Russia and some of its close allies, such as Ukraine, Belarus, and so forth. Um, but now we just refer to this area as Eastern Europe. So East, uh, the countries of Eastern Europe are considered some of the most polluted on Earth, and that's really true. And I'll give you some statistics. Um, it's estimated that 90% of Poland's rivers have, uh, are, are so polluted that they have no aquatic or plant life. Until uh, relatively recently, 95% uh, of Warsaw, which is uh, one of the largest cities in Poland, 95% of Warsaw's sewage was uh, untreated and went right into the rivers. 50% um, of the country's forests show damage from air pollution. A third of the population 
is expected to suffer an environmental-induced uh, disease such as cancer or respiratory illness. In the Czech Republic, three-quarters of the forests are dying from air pollution and acid rain. And in the industrial heartland, life, expectant, uh, life expectancy is 11 years less than the national average. Uh, so uh, in this area in here, in the former Czech Republic. Um, so uh, it's... Uh, Pretty, uh, the environmental issues in Eastern Europe are, are pretty, uh, pretty substantial. So, as I mentioned, you know, parts of the problem were lack of environmental controls, especially during the Soviet era, lack of money now to improve environmental conditions, and um, there's a lot of other political and privatization issues for industries and things like that. Uh, so here's some images. Uh, you can see here's the acid rain that I mentioned in the Czech Republic. And Bohemia is one of the industrial heartlands of the Czech Republic, or is the industrial heartland of the Czech Republic. And this is a toxic landscape in Romania as well, also uh, an Eastern European country. Uh, so as I mentioned, in Western Europe, on the other hand, uh, there's been uh, a lot of attention uh, paid to improving the environment. You can see we have landscape restoration in England. So this area was at one time deforested. Actually, much of uh, Europe was deforested at one time. And you can see we're, uh, you know, there's an effort to replant trees and so forth in some of these deforested areas. And then we have uh, alternative uh, energy sources uh, being used. And we have this wind, wind farm uh, in Denmark uh, to produce electricity. Uh, so other environmental issues, obviously, are global warming, which is not just an issue for Europe, but it's an issue for the, war, uh, for the world. Uh, and as you can see, we have melting glaciers, much like we have in North America. And you can see uh, from this image, this is actually pretty interesting. This shows you uh, the glacial retreat in the Austrian Alps. So at one time, this glacier that's back up in here extended the whole way down into here. So you can see the glacier has actually been slowly melting until it's back up into this area here. And so, uh, you know, there's, a re there's real issues with uh, glaciers uh, globally and their disappearance globally. And in the United States, it's, it's expected that we won't have any glaciers at all, uh, you know, by, uh, the, uh, by the 2020s. And it's a similar situation in Europe. Uh, all the European countries have uh, signed on to the Kyoto Protocol, and um, the EU, EU has uh, developed an emissions trading scheme where um, uh, you can actually uh, purchase the rights to pollute uh, from other countries and things like that. So uh, in 2005, the EU initiated a carbon trading scheme. Uh, it's what's sometimes referred to a cap-and-trade system to make businesses to make business more expensive for those who pollute while rewarding those industries that stay under a certain quota uh, in their carbon emissions. So uh, very forward-looking when it comes to environmental issues in Europe, at least in Western Europe. And this will eventually spread into Eastern Europe as more and more Eastern European countries become members of the European Union. And they'll be um, required to put into place the same sort of uh, regulations. So that's, uh, that's, what, uh, that's the physical geography of Europe, um, and that's where I'm going to stop with this lecture. 
When we come back, we'll take a look at the population and settlement geography, as well as the cultural geography of Europe.